This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Canadian Red Cross Ukraine Humanitarian Crisis Appeal was launched several weeks ago when Russia began its brutal invasion. The need in Ukraine and neighboring countries willing to stand up for the sovereign nation is greater than ever. The crisis is deepening. The devastation is widening. The danger is now at heart-stopping levels. The Red Cross is on the ground in and around the conflict trying to get life-saving aid to those desperately in need. Essentials like water, food, medicine, clothing, and blankets. But they are doing so much more than that for the many who must or have chosen to stay behind and for the millions who are fleeing for their lives. Courtney Wilson is Senior Manager Communications with the Canadian Red Cross. She is our guest on the feed. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. So the president of Ukraine spoke to the Canadian Parliament a few days ago, and he asked for so much, and, and so much that is needed to help that country survive this conflict. One of the things he pointed out was the increasing need for humanitarian aid. Is the Red Cross able to answer that call? Yeah, I mean, as the people have seen all over the news and online, the situation in Ukraine as well as in surrounding countries is dire. The humanitarian needs we're seeing on the ground are immense. Over 3 million people have already fled the country and 2 million are displaced inside as well. So, you know, we know inside Ukraine, the humanitarian situation is truly devastating. Um, we're seeing individuals and families that are seeking safety and shelters. A lot of them are there for hours on end and they can't go outside to get even the basic necessities like food or water for fear of the shelling. Um, I heard the story of one woman um, who was in a shelter for about 100 people, and she's there with her family, and she recalled fleeing under the bomb explosions with shells falling directly over their heads. And, you know, they had to flee to safety um, in a basement with only what they were wearing. So we're hearing a lot of that. People have to flee very quickly, sometimes even in just their pajamas. Um, and that also includes some of our Red Cross teams on the ground in Ukraine. I've taken meetings with colleagues that are having to take calls um, from bunkers as well. So, you know, the Ukrainian Red Cross is on the ground with the International Red Cross partners, um, and they're supporting those affected. Um, but they're also living with this day to day. So, you know, the Ukrainian Red Cross has provided um, first aid training to over 12,000 people, which might not seem like a lot, but if you think about it, if each of those people is unable to provide emergency first aid to even four other people, that's 50,000 people potentially who might have their lives saved until they can get further medical care. So the Red Cross is on the ground. They're providing those essential items, hygiene kits, blankets, clothing, et cetera, um, to make sure people have what they need um, in these really dire situations and trying to get to all those affected regardless of where they are in the country. And that's just inside Ukraine. Um, you know, we're obviously seeing a lot of people crossing into bordering countries as well, where our teams are also on the ground providing people um, with the basic necessities, food, water, SIM cards, so they can get in touch with their loved ones. A lot of people have been separated from them. They don't know where they are, and that's causing additional emotional distress. Um, so, you know, the situation is really dire both in Ukraine um, and outside, and our Red Cross teams on the ground are working around the clock to respond to needs as quickly um, and as effectively as they can. Let's expand a little bit more on the actual war zone, which is at this point we're looking at, at, at so many parts of Ukraine. How are the aid workers, your Red Cross, how are they getting what they need to give to those in need? Talk to me about that chain of events. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it really depends day to day. The situation is super fluid and it's evolving honestly, almost hourly. And so obviously the safety and security of our teams on the ground is, is of critical importance. And so as they are able to safely access communities to provide that support, they're doing so. Um, yesterday, the Ukrainian Red Cross, um, International Committee of Red Cross, so earlier this week, they were working to help get people safe passage out of the city of Sumy. Um, we're also seeing um, convoys of trucks. So earlier this week, we had 11 trucks carrying 200 tons of humanitarian aid. That's about the size of an average home, if you can imagine, um, getting that into the country. And then our teams are working um, with the local Red Cross branches in the different areas um, to distribute those items. So that's, that's like war wounded kits and relief packages 
packages and water and sanitation supplies as well. So, you know, the safety of our personnel is, is at the forefront of our minds because they can only continue to do the really critical work on the ground if they're safe. And so we're working very closely with them to make sure that they can get the aid in where it's needed. But of course, access remains an issue um, because of the conflict. So um, it's a very, very fluid and very evolving situation. Um, and we're working closely with them to make sure that they can deliver the aid to the people who need it on the ground. And geographically, do you have a staging area where when supplies are brought over to the 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 conflict zone, so perhaps it is in Poland where the staging area is and takes place so that everything can be hopefully safely put together and then brought into Ukraine. Tell me about that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm not on the ground myself, but um, humanitarian aid and so some of those essential relief items are, a lot of them are in Poland. We've actually sent um, some tarps blankets, hygiene and kitchen kits. Um, so those are on their way over. Um, those will be based out of Poland and then our teams are working on plans to distribute those. So again, it's a very fluid situation. So day by day, we just have to look at the security situation and see how we can best get that aid across into Ukraine. Um, but that's not just Poland. That's a lot of the surrounding countries, um, all of our Red Cross national Mill societies in Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, um, Poland, um, they're all mobilizing and as they can, trying to get aid across borders and then also welcoming people into their countries and providing them with a safe place to rest their heads at the end of the day. So it's truly a, a global Red Cross response um, to this conflict. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're committed to being there and, and supporting people in the days, weeks and months, months to come. You mentioned that uh, many people have been trained now in, in first aid, which is really, really important. How important is it for humanitarian efforts? So the Red Cross team, for instance, that is working so hard to deliver humanitarian aid, how important is it that they're working with local communities and local organizations within Ukraine? I think it's one of the most important pieces, to be honest. I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement is we work with the local national societies. So, you know, here in Canada, people are probably used to seeing the Canadian Red Cross on the ground when their communities have been devastated by floods or fires or, you know, the tornadoes in Ottawa a few years ago. And so it's the same in, in these countries. The Ukrainian um, Red Cross is on the ground and they have been. Um, even before the escalation of violence in Ukraine. And so they know the communities, they speak the local language, they know the culture, and they are really our guides um, to providing that um, targeted humanitarian assistance to people who need it. So it's really critical that we work closely with them. Um, they know their communities, they're from their communities. A lot of these people are the ones that have been impacted, and yet they get up every day and volunteer and work with the Red Cross to support people who have been impacted. So they're really supporting um, their neighbors. And so I think it's probably one of the most critical parts of the response um, is really working with those local national societies. Um, they know their communities best. And so we really take lead from them and then provide that additional support and capacity just because the needs are so immense. Courtney, it appears, and this is through news reports, that the Russians are, they don't really play by the war rules, if you will. How is it that the Red Cross on the ground, how is it that the team is staying safe? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, our team's, um, one of our biggest security um, approaches is acceptance by the community. So those local teams have the acceptance on the ground, but it is obviously a very volatile situation um, and their safety is obviously a huge concern. Um, so we're making sure that um, when teams are going out to provide that assistance, that they're doing it as safely as possible. Um, so there's all kinds of checks and balances in place to make sure that that's happening. But the Red Cross is also urgently calling on all parties to this conflict to remember their obligations under international humanitarian law. So parties to the conflict must ensure the protection of civilian populations and those that are no longer taking part in fighting, who have never taken part in fighting, um, and so it's really critical that they make sure that their military operations are planned and conducted in a way that ensures the protection of civilians and civilian objects. And, you know, the space for neutral and partial and independent humanitarian action has to be protected so that humanitarian organizations, including the Red Cross, um, can maintain access and provide critical support to civilians. So um, we are calling urgently on all parties to the conflict to remember their obligations under international humanitarian law. How does the Red Cross deal with situations like Mariupol where the city is without power, without water, without 
anything that is essential to to keeping life to to maintaining life how how does the red cross deal with that yeah absolutely um i can't speak too closely to that so really um the international committee of the red cross they specialize in working in in conflict zones and so they are working very closely on the ground to try to gain access to maripol um because the situation is very dire it's cold, people do lack access to those basic necessities. And so um, they're engaged in dialogue and conversations on how their teams can safely access. But at this point, they still haven't been able to. And so that's why it's so critically important um, that they maintain this dialogue and that they call on parties to the conflict to remember their obligations under international humanitarian law so that they can, as soon as possible, get access to, to those communities, to those people that are in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. So it's definitely a complex situation. Um, but our teams are are very well aware of what's going on and then working really hard to gain access um, to those people that are basically stuck in Maripol right now and in dire need of humanitarian assistance. So my hope is in the coming days that um, they'll be able to get in there and, and provide that support. We're seeing a refugee crisis as a result of the invasion by the Russians of Ukraine how can the Red Cross help in a situation like that? And the refugee crisis is—it seems to be in border countries that have are standing by Ukraine, and even beyond. How involved can the Red Cross be in terms of supporting refugees who've had to flee for their lives? Absolutely. Well, so in surrounding countries, in particular, we have our Red Cross, Red Crescent National Societies that are on the ground, and they're working with international um, Red Cross teams as well, just because. The needs are so immense, and it's been such a quick movement of 3 million people almost now. So um, really, the the needs are, are there. They're very dire. People are arriving across borders exhausted. Um, we're seeing injuries. Um, people aren't able to get in touch with their loved ones. So our teams are on the ground. They're at train stations and border crossings at reception centers to provide support. So they're giving them medical and psychosocial support. Um, basic necessities like food and water. They're also providing them with SIM cards. They can try to get in touch with their families. Um, I was talking to one of my Canadian colleagues that's on the ground in Hungary right now, um, and she was at a reception center earlier this week um, that's at a local school. And the children, um, like many in Canada, have just returned to in-class schooling, and now we're back to online schooling from home so that the school can remain open for a safe to be a safe space for people that have been displaced to go and to get that humanitarian assistance they need. Um, she was also telling me that some of the teachers are delivering classes online in the day and then coming to the reception center in the evening to provide support to those arriving from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So the solidarity that we're seeing from these surrounding countries um, for people fleeing the violence has been truly heartwarming, to be honest. And, you know, the Red Cross is, is in 192 countries around the world. So we're committed to supporting um, however we can with people that are seeking safety. Courtney, how and why? Should Canadians support the Ukraine crisis effort? You know, in in times of conflict, of disaster, people living in Canada are always so generous to supporting, whether it's people in their own backyards or people on the other side of the world. And, you know, the response to the crisis in Ukraine has been no exception. So, you know, Canadians wishing to help um, can donate to our Ukrainian Ukraine Humanitarian Crisis Appeal um, online at redcross.ca or by calling 1-800-418. One 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 one. Um, that money raised will enable the Red Cross Red Crescent movement to respond to humanitarian needs um, on the ground in Ukraine and in surrounding countries. And to date, we've already committed forty five million um, to the International Red Cross response, and that's being used to support immediate needs of people affected. So it's on the ground; it's being used in action right now. We've been able to send critical relief supplies as well as nine Canadian. Um, humanitarian expert to support their response. So that money is being used on the ground already to support the immense humanitarian needs. And then we continue to work with our partners on the ground um, to see how we can best support people as the situation is fluidly evolving. Courtney Wilson, Senior Manager Communications, the Canadian Red Cross, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. The Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is also trying to help from here at home. Craig Robertson with that story. 
Joining us on the line is Peter Sterren. Peter is the president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress located in uh, Toronto, the Toronto chapter. Uh, I know uh, a busy, busy time for you, Peter, so we do thank you for, uh, for your time today. My pleasure. And quite a few topics to touch on, including the no-fly zone, uh, NATO's involvement or, or non-involvement, uh, the nuclear threat. But I just want to start by talking about your friends and, and your family uh, in the Ukraine. How are they doing? Sure. Well, um, our families, uh, my wife's and, and mine, are still there. Uh, as far as we know, none of them have left the country. Uh, on my wife's side, her family is in eastern Ukraine that's been overtaken by the Russians. She has not been able to communicate with them for over three weeks, uh, even though they have cell phones. And my family is primarily in western Ukraine, and they're involved in, on volunteer efforts and helping. And uh, a friend of mine is actually in Kiev with his four children. He's actually from Toronto, born and raised in Toronto, but he's been a professor at a cave university for the last 20 years. And he's down on the ground with his four kids uh, just south of Kiev, uh, doing what they can. So um, incredible, but at the same time, very inspiring. And the uh, tide has turned. The Ukrainians yeah. are taking the fight to the Russians, and they will lose. Yeah, the fighting spirit of the Ukrainians has been an eye-opener to see, that is for sure. From All the way from the top, from Zelensky down to uh, young men who get like three days of training uh, to, to go and, and fight the war efforts. It sure, is, uh, it sure is inspiring to see. It certainly has. Everything from the leadership. But, I mean, you have to realize, they had 200,000 plus full uh, military. Um, so the Ukrainians, and they, most of them have been trained by Canadians. Uh, over the last seven years, actually, that that uh, military base that was bombed in Yavariv, it's only 20 kilometers from the Polish border. Yeah, That was the training ground where, under Operation Unifier, Canadian troops have been training Ukrainian soldiers for the last eight years, actually, since the invasion of Crimea. So, um, well-trained, highly motivated, but now we're talking about 600,000 extra reservists. That's basically the size of the whole Russian army. They say there's about 800,000. Well, if you've got 800,000 willing to fight to the end, on top of millions of volunteers, you forget, this is a country of over 40 million people. Yes, almost 3 million have left, mostly women and children. Um, there is no way, and I have to follow um, a number of general, my favorite general, Mark Hurtling, you can look him up. He's been saying from the beginning, there is no way you can take over a country of 40 million people if everybody is dead set against you. I want to talk about the, the no-fly zone and, and NATO's involvement. I know Estonia was in the news uh, earlier this week. The no-fly no zone has been a, a huge issue with regards to, to NATO. Should they call for the no-fly zone? I know Zelensky's calling for it. Uh, talk about these, these developments. Well, they certainly have been very supportive, uh, late to the game, as usual. You know, this could have all been avoided eight years ago had Ukraine had the support militarily. Um, we could have fought the fought and... Uh, stop Russia at the gates, but unfortunately that didn't happen. But at least now they've come up and they've provided weapons, uh, useful weapons, mostly defensive weapons. Kind of problem when you have everybody attacking you and willing to kill purposely maim women and children, because we know that that's the strategy. It's the same strategy the Russians use in Syria, same strategy they use in Afghanistan. By maiming women and children, maybe the fighters will lose their resolve and won't be... Uh, fighting uh, uh, on the front lines. As you know, NATO and Canada included have been against the no-fly zone. Well, Estonia, through their parliament, and I sent you the link, their parliament uh, it looks like unanimously, unanimously supported asking NATO for a no-fly zone. There's also a group of 27 foreign policy advisors and former retired U.S. generals that last week signed the statement uh, supporting a no-fly zone. It can be done, it can be limited, same way it was done in, in Syria, same way it was done in Bosnia. Yes, Russian planes were shot down and it didn't create World War III. We believe the Russian leadership is not suicidal, but that's their PR saying that if, it, if the West gets involved, well, the West has been providing arms to Ukraine for the last few months. I've been in trigger nuclear war. It's just a talking point that they use to discourage everyone. 20 kilometers from the Polish border, 10 bombs were dropped. What's it going to take? Peter Stern is our guest. Peter is the president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, the Toronto chapter. You know, I'm watching the news, Peter, 
And, and I'm just like, why are we not doing more? I, I, these sanctions just don't seem to be working. Putin doesn't seem to really care. I understand that NATO doesn't want to, quote unquote, escalate things. But I, I have to ask myself, are we doing enough? You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, Canada came in early because of the UK in World War II. The US didn't get involved until 1941 in World War II. How many millions of people died until the U.S. was attacked at Pearl Harbor and they got involved? Our point is a dictatorship as evil as they have in Russia now will not stop, will not be satiated by taking just one country. They want the whole empire back. You do not stop them now. You're going to have a bigger problem in the future. Happened in World War II. Happened in World War I. History shows us that when you, whenever we, there's evil in the world, you have to face it, stand up to it. And economic sanctions are not enough. It doesn't mean putting boots on the ground, but protect the skies in limited areas, even the green corridors where people are trying to be evacuated. Mariupol, 400,000 people. Right now they're starving. They haven't had food for three weeks. They haven't had water for three weeks. 400,000. You can create a green corridor and say, look, we're not fighting you, Russia. But don't you dare bomb that city. And, and Frankly, I don't believe they even have to do it. They just have to say it. And by saying the opposite, you know, President Biden on Friday says, we are not going to get involved. We're not going to do this. Well, the message to Putin is, oh, you're not going to do it? Well, good. I got a green light to do what I'm continuing to do. And that poor, that image that we saw yesterday, last week of that pregnant lady, was she died. Her child died. Her pelvis was shredded. She died in excruciating pain and she lost her. That made worldwide headlines. Where's the reaction? That's just one soul. They believe in Mariupol alone. There's over 2,500 dead. Can't even bury the people. They're putting them in mass graves because there's nowhere to bury these people. Yeah. Horrific beyond measure. World War II, the only thing that you can compare is to nazi germany and the world reacted so we're telling the world it's time to react we're talking about 40 million plus more than the population of canada yeah and how about the, the nuclear threat i mean it's real putin's been talking about it we could have another chernobyl on our hands if not bigger uh this nuclear threat's a real deal well of course you know nuclear again if you believe that the russian government and mr putin are suicidal then it's a real threat but nothing, nothing I've read in any of the um, psychological assessments at such, he's calculating, he's cold, he's brutal, and so is his regime and all the people that follow his orders, because it's not just one man killing people. Um, but push comes to shove, they know that no one can win a nuclear war. There's, there's no coming backward. It's, it's mutual assured destruction. So... Say that they're going to do this. Uh, they're, they're, well, if you believe they're that crazy, then why isn't the world mobilizing? Because if they're that crazy, that means they'll do something else, yeah. just as evil in the future. If you believe that they're willing to destroy the world, at what point do we say, well, we got to deal with them? It's kind of like when you got this bully in high school that's going around beating people nonstop. Are we going to say, well, it's, it's no good because he might beat up someone else? Or do you actually go in and deal with it? And maybe you're going to take a few punches. And I think it's the same thing. I really do not believe, um, and more and more uh, former retired generals are saying, no, we got to do it. We're giving them weapons. We're giving Ukraine all kinds of aid. That hasn't triggered a world war. And frankly, Russia now knows that they can't fight a world war. They wouldn't win. Can't even, beat up, can't even finish it off in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, Peter, I have to ask, if, if you were on a Zoom call with, with, with a Ukrainian right now, a fellow Ukrainian, what would your message be to, to them in the Ukraine? The truth is out. Everyone knows exactly where evil stands and where the side of righteousness and good people is on the side of Ukraine. They've shown the world we have been right for the last number of decades. It was painted through different sources in media that Ukrainians are some kind of fascist or some kind of, they have some kind of hidden agenda. Clearly, I mean, Ukraine has a Jewish president the only country outside of Israel, voted by 72% of the population. Disinformation has been abound for decades against Ukraine, of course, coming out of Russia. And they're doing it today. Uh, in fact, unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, we know that media has been shut down. Uh, a lot of reporters have left Russia now. 
they know there's, there's absolutely no free speech. In fact, yesterday was quite interesting. One person did a test. They showed up uh, in the middle of Moscow with a, with a piece of paper with nothing on it. Right? And maybe you saw that. And they got arrested. Arrested. So it's, you're, it's, it's beyond Orwellian. It's everything we could not possibly imagine is real. That's the kind of government you're dealing with. And really, Russia has to, has to learn and has to be put in its place. And then we have to try to rebuild. And what's your message to NATO? I hope it's not too late, but what's your message to them? Step up, or uh, we could be wor- dealing with a much worse problem down the road. Uh, just as it happened in World War II, you have to deal with it. What's the purpose of having NATO if they, if they don't do anything uh, when, a, when a country of 40 million people is being basically slaughtered in front of our own very eyes? This is probably the most documented war in history. Everybody's got a cell phone. There's videos left, right, and center. Uh, today I saw the video of the poor maimed children. These are children, innocent children, maimed, missing limbs. Um, at what point do we say, no, we as humanity, we're not going to take this. Just because you've got a big stick doesn't mean you could, because you could use that line anywhere else. You could go and decide to invite the Baltic states tomorrow. You could take them over in a flash. There's only a few million people in Estonia and Lithuania. And if he moved on them, well, the well, it's you know, Article 5 of NATO. Well, we really, he could just say, well, you, do you want a nuclear war? Are you going to, are you going to, are you prepared to do that? I believe he's bluffing, and, and, and there's many professional um, people with military backgrounds that are saying the same thing. He has successfully bluffed and gotten everything that he wanted for the last 20 years. Now it's time to say enough. Well, we thank you so much for your time today, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure. Our hearts are, and thoughts are, are with you and your family in the Ukraine. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Peter Sterren is the president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, the Toronto Chapter. For The Feed, I'm Craig Robertson. After the break, making a safe return to the workplace. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. A lot of companies are calling their employees back to the office after months and, in some cases, years of working remotely. So what are the challenges for employers, bosses, and business leaders when it comes to ensuring the newly returned staff has a safe, secure, and positive work environment? Leon Gorin is an authority on leadership and business strategy. He's also the president and CEO of PEO Leadership. Leon, thanks for joining us on The Feed. Oh, my pleasure. Looking forward to our conversation today. Why is it that businesses, organizations, companies are so enthusiastic about bringing their employees back into the workplace? Well, I think, you know, when you talk about organizations, you talk about the leadership teams really of being very excited about bringing employees back. And I think it's essentially some of it psychological. I mean, they've all been working on their own in their homes for well, almost two years, some interaction in and out of the office. But, you know, as human beings, we're almost not wired to be on our own all the time. So just the interaction of bringing people together, the culture, the idea of rebuilding our culture, having the energy and uh, the excitement within an office environment is really, uh, that's really exciting to the, the business leaders out there today about bringing people back. What about the portion of of the population that has grown accustomed to working remotely and rather likes it and really is reluctant psychologically and physically, they're reluctant to return to the workplace, to the office? So uh, a couple of things on that. One is we've seen that actually over the last two years as people have been called back at different times and, you know, it's been an up and down ride. You know, what's really interesting is, number one, when people do get called back and then they do go back into the office, I think they've forgotten what it was like to actually work in the office and, and have your colleagues around you. And a lot of the outcomes, actually, what's interesting is that after a day or two in the office, they seem to be re-energized and in many cases actually want to come back more so than even as that's demanded of them. That's number one. Number two is 
the the idea, you know, people talk about productivity and we've been very productive working on Zoom or on on the phones and, and talking, but I think what we're looking at is a different kind of productivity today when people return to the office. It's been very difficult working in isolation, especially if you're driving innovation and creativity. If you're a very collaborative type of organization, you need collaboration. And the third piece is if you need mentoring, and we all need mentoring in our organization, so, and growing one's careers, those three pieces really are very, very important today in terms of bringing people back in and, and getting our organizations focused and moving forward. And do those three pieces also apply to the leaders, the bosses, the business owners and, and company CEOs? Will they be in need of, of you know, support, I guess, in making that transition from Zoom calls in their home office to being back in, and in some cases, People call it the ivory tower, but back into their company office. Well, I'll tell you, I think it's a necessity. I mean, you know, we all wonder what the business leaders, some of them are older. It's an older demographic. They've got a custom. Some have moved north. Some have moved east, west, mm-hmm. out of Toronto. The reality is a leader needs to role play. You need to, you know, if you're building your culture, and 75% of organizations' cultures come from the leader, you need to be there. So I don't think this is an option for the leadership. The leadership needs to be there. Now, the, the question is, hybrid's not going anywhere, so there is a lot of flexibility. And what's flexibility going to look like in your organization today? Interesting, and you do bring up hybrid. A recent survey stated that quite a number of employees would like to see that as an option. Is it the responsibility of the CEO, of the leader of the business, the organization, the company to find a creative way to offer those options? I, I Absolutely. And I think it's actually happening today. Like if you talk to business leaders today, and I think everybody at the end of last year was intent trying to bring, starting to bring people back actually. And they were coming back in that hybrid model. January sort of threw us for a loop where everything shut down again. Um, so, the leaders in the organizations today, and it's not just the top leader, it's their whole executive team. I think they're all being somewhat flexible. And today, I think they would tell you, we're still learning. There is no model yet that has been, been proven, whether you should be 100% in the office or 100% at home, or even a combination of both of what it looks like. So the way they're breaking it out is, I think, some of them that are looking in their, into their own organizations and they say, okay, we need collaboration, we need creativity, we need interaction among our employees. We're going to ask them to come back two, three, maybe four times a week. Those that are, don't necessarily need that type of interaction are not necessarily flexing their muscle and pushing people to come back yet. They're sort of sitting on the sidelines a little bit and just waiting to see how it plays out. But I think hybrid's not going anywhere. Hybrid is here. Um, People have adjusted to it, and it's just going to evolve. There'll be a new workplace in the, in the future in terms of what it looks like. So what will the workplace of the future look like, Leon? And do you think that greatness can be achieved in a new setting? Absolutely. I think the new setting will be a hybrid setting, some type of hybrid setting. We're in a transition uh, state today of what it may look like. Um, but, you know, you come back to every organization will be a little different in terms of what the future workplace looks like to them. Um, if you're a creative house where you're coming up with, again, areas where innovation is really important, collaboration, where you need to speak with your team members, your employees throughout the organization, coming together is very important. So creating spaces in that work environment, perhaps they're open spaces, perhaps it's hoteling, which the accounting firms have used for, for many, many years now. Um, that will evolve and people are going to be flexible about it today and trying to figure it out. The Zoom technology, the Microsoft Teams technology, that stuff is not going to go away. Productivity, we've proved that you can be way more productive using the technology, for example, rather than sitting on a highway for an hour and a half to get to a meeting. But at the same time, there'll be times where you actually need to be face-to-face, you know, be it sales, be it I need to get to my team meeting, uh, quarterly strategy meetings, whatever it is. So again, every organization will be a little bit different, but one thing to remember is 
technology is not going anywhere. It's actually going to continue to improve. And it's just going to be another tool that we all use within our organizations to enhance productivity. But interaction, we're people, we're human beings. We need to interact. And, and sitting on the phone or talking on Zoom or Teams is okay, but it's not great. It's not the same thing. So, Leon, what's your best advice then when it comes to calling back employees into the office, back to the workplace? What do you say to the bosses out there right now? Well, with all leadership positions, it needs to start with them. So, you know, you're, you're asking your team members to come back. So I would tell you, you need to be the first person to show up at the office. You need to be there. And I would say if you're asking them to come back three, two or three times a week, you probably want to be there five times a week because you're going to stagger your workforce and visibility is really, really important. The other thing that I would think about as a business leader is how are we going to run that hybrid approach? So will I allow, is it two or three days or is it three or four days? Uh, how am I going to create community and culture within my organization again? How am I going to convince my employees that they should be coming back in and they should test it and they should feel it. So those are the things that I would sort of start promoting. I would definitely be asking the employees to come back a couple of days a week. Um, probably, actually, if it already is, hasn't already happened, it will start probably April 1st as you'll see more and more people going back uh, to the office. But I, I come back to one of the first points we talked about. People have forgotten what it's actually like to be in the office and the interaction that happens there. And they get very comfortable in what they've been doing over the last year or two. I think you need to open their eyes again in terms of what can it be like in that office environment, working side by side with their colleagues. I got to thank you, Leon Gorin, an authority on leadership and business strategy, president and CEO, PEO leadership. Really appreciate your time on the feed. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anne. Tina Cortez is next with the Human Resources Support. Farima Akemsadeh is an assistant professor at York University's School of Human Resource Management. Thank you for your time, Professor. Thank you for having me, Tina. So what is the role of HR within a company, especially during these very unusual times? Um, well, it is usually during a crisis that some aspects of organizations come into the spotlight. And this was the case for the human resource management departments in almost every organization for the past two years. Um, they are the departments traditionally in charge of the health and safety of the employees and complying with the Health and Safety Act. Um, so as some of us are returning back to the physical workplace, um, the role of HR is still vitally important, particularly on the health and safety issues. So, for example, they need to make sure that employees are aware of their rights under the Occupational Health and Safety Act and that employers are respecting these rights. They include the right to know the hazards at work, the right to participate and make recommendations about health and safety issues, and the right to refuse unsafe work. Um, they're also responsible for putting several controls in place um, to protect the workers from the uh, potential outbreak of coronavirus. So environmental controls, such as deep cleaning of the workspaces, HR would oversee that, administrative controls for um, keeping employees safe, such as providing them with a checklist of symptoms for self-diagnosing or sending daily reminders on these issues so that any person that is showing symptoms or is at an elevated risk can actually remain home. Um, they can also come up with uh, work schedules to reduce workers' and customers' density at work. So staggered shifts are becoming a thing. Um, where employees can come into work and leave at different times. This can also reduce the overcrowding of public transportation. Um, and, of course, uh, like some things are um, already in place, such as engineering controls, um, partitions and barriers between workers and between employees and customers. They need to remain in place um, until we are sure that the pandemic is over. And um, occupational health and safety officers within DHR should also make sure that ventilation and air conditioning systems are up to standard. From what you've just described, it sounds like employers and HR will be working very closely together to support employees during this period. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yes, you're right. Um, um, 
in understanding how close they should be working with one another, we should also um, look at the data. Um, there are additional challenges too. Um, many of us, uh, we have uh, experienced remote work for the first time during the pandemic. Uh, so Statistics Canada, for example, um, says that before 2016, only about 4% of Canadians were working from home. Now, in um, some industries such as finance, insurance, professional and technical services, the percentages are up like over 70%. Um, and everyone went through a not-so-smooth learning curve to be able to make this shift. Companies also made investments in making work from home possible during the pandemic. So we might see companies where a portion of the workers are there in offices all the time, while others only come in on certain days or work from home all the time. So managing um, this type of divided workforce requires very close collaboration between HR and, and, uh, and employers. Um, the good thing is this is not the first time that we have data or we have thought about practices of how to manage a divided workforce. Um, Jen and Brennan, they recently published an article in MIT Sloan Management Review, and they suggested that we can learn from the previous experiences with managing the work of astronauts in outer space when they were collaborating with their colleagues on Earth. So it's kind of a similar situation, and they have two very important recommendations um, that um, employers and HR should work together to come up with routines um, that the office workers, those who are physically in office and those who are working remotely, are both following. For example, emails at the beginning of the day to help organize the hours ahead or um, certain time frames for responding to emails, discouraging colleagues and others from sending emails after five, and also um, training supervisors on how to con stay connected with their employees who are still at work um, uh, and uh, those who are working remotely. Um, and making sure that the conversations are not only about work, but about um, how employees are doing, their well-being, and um, whether or not they need support. Um, I want to also add that the stress of returning to work, or what we call re-entry anxiety, will most probably be very high, and this is expected for many reasons, including health and safety concerns or navigating the uncertainties um, and going through a big change after two years of the work-from-home arrangement. Um, many of us have already forgotten how we managed to survive the gardener or <laughs> full of sports traffic uh, during rush hours. So all these anxieties and stresses are coming back, and HR can help employees um, manage this stress. And it is very critical for, for employers to work closely uh, with HR on this matter. Kurt Lewin has a famous uh, model. Um, he uses the metaphor of iced water to describe this process. Uh, he suggests that to give a new shape to an ice cube, first you must give enough time for it to melt and unfreeze, then put it into a new mold and allow time for it to refreeze, to take a new shape. So many companies are, for example, smoothly, gradually getting into this back to work. They require once or twice a week physical presence, or they provide choices of which day of the week people want to come in. And these practices seem to be very helpful. Um, so um, HR can work, work closely with employers to come up with the appropriate coordination interventions and complex business processes and scheduling that can make this happen. It sounds so complicated. Hybrid schedules, masking policies, uh, social distancing. There will obviously be an adjustment period. There will be, as you suggested, anxiety. How does the employer manage all of that? Um, a key part of it is to give employees voice in um, health and safety issues that concern them and uh, this transition of coming back to work. Um, so research is suggesting that if they are a part of the decision-making, part of how uh, different policies are developed with regards to coming back to work, it, it will all happen more smoothly. And then um, HR can facilitate the discussion between employers and employees on these matters and facilitate um, like uh, joint decision-making on many of these issues. Professor, do you have a final piece of advice then for both employees and employers? Um, well, the most important thing is at this time to make sure that um, the employers and the public are being safe and healthy. Uh, and if there are policies to be in place, um, legally speaking, employers have an obligation to maintain safe work environment for their workers. However, with any of these policies, 
um, like people are thinking about requiring proof of vaccination uh, or masking at work and continue those practices, um, these policies are subject to applicable human rights codes and therefore companies should seek legal advice on many of these. Um, so I recommend paying attention to those things and um, making sure that in high-risk settings where um, masking or proof of vaccination are permissible under the human rights codes, um, those uh, who are unable to be vaccinated for code-related reasons, for medical issues or disability-related issues, um, are actually accommodated. There is definitely much to consider during this transitional period. Professor, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Pina. Supply chain issues are hitting the car industry. Kevin Frankish is behind the wheel on this story. So I'm currently looking for a new car, and my eyes have really been opened, and I thought it was really important to bring it to you. And the reason I'm, I'm telling you that I, they, I'm looking for a new car right now is because my guest, Brian Fraser, is with Delari, Ontario region, uh, and, and they represent... How many, how many uh, auto dealers do you represent, Brian? So we have over 120 across Canada and just over 20 just here in the GTA alone. Yeah, so I, would, I just want to be very transparent that, yes, I'm doing some business with Brian, but that has nothing whatsoever to do with this interview uh, at all. I, but I think this is really important information for people who are looking for a new car. And Brian, like I said, my eyes were open. My, I thought the idea was I go to the dealership, they show me a car, and then I go home with said car that day. Uh, that doesn't happen these days, does it? No, not at all. Now everything's a uh, factory order or an incoming unit. A lot of people are told by dealerships now it's going to be a year, two-year wait time, but that's Sometimes a scare tactic. There is some incoming units though that are available, um, but it's good that we're working with Galari Group. So I'm not focused in on Toyota or Honda. So just like you said to me, Kevin, you were like, "I need a car soon." So we actually narrowed down a certain brand yeah. that has cars available. And then just like you said, I'll be bringing it to your house for the test drive just to make sure you're happy with it. And then if everything goes well, we're going to do the paperwork there at your home, and I'll deliver the car to your house a week later. Yeah, and I love that fact. Now. Going in uh, to the dealership, if you're going to be told it's going to be a year before you can get your vehicle, why, first of all, are we being told that now? What's going on? Well, so what's, what's been going on is uh, with the pandemic, of course, you're going to have factories shut down and a lot of these aftermarket parts are shut down as well. Uh, for example, now we have an issue with the war in Ukraine. There's wiring harnesses that are produced for Porsche, Volkswagen, and Audi. And those factories are now shut down due to the war. So now we're going to have those German companies specifically affected. But you have Hondas coming in. You have Mitsubishi models coming in, right? So there is some models that are currently available. But if you're looking at other brands, you're going to have to wait longer. Now, there's actually some car companies, and I know Ford and Chevy are among them, that are shipping their vehicles to customers incomplete. So apparently there's a computer chip shortage as well. So there are some that are being shipped saying, uh, yeah, you know what? You'll have no control over uh, your, your heated seats or, or things like that if you want your car sooner rather than later. Exactly. So actually that's a problem with uh, some of the premium brands, Cadillac, BMW. They're giving the car without certain things. So a GMC right now or a Cadillac that I tell you, they have no heated material. So you're not going to get a heated steering wheel or heated seats unless you're able to wait the, the year for the order. But if you wanted to pick it up in the next two months, those are the deletes we're getting. On the BMW side, it's lumbar support. On the passenger side, that they're currently deleting out of the car. And then some of the, the models are deleting the sound systems as well. So it depends on the VIN number. And that's why I tell all my clients, I'd much rather sell a car that's incoming or at least already produced. So I can tell you what it's missing or what it has off the hop, right? Where a lot of clients are just uh, doing kind of paper deals at some of these dealerships, which is not going to provide five-star service in the end. In the end, somebody might have a hiccup or might have an issue because you ordered a car this way, and by the time you get it, it's a different color. It doesn't have a heated steering wheel, right? And, and these, are, I mean, these are all manageable things. I can do without the heated seats and the heated steering wheel if, if I want to get the car sooner. What car, how should I be going into a dealership then? How prepared should I be? What kind of wait? And if I don't want to wait, what are the questions I should be asking or even, even the, the suggestions I should be making to the dealer? 
Well, I love that. So that's where I come into play. So a lot of times people don't even walk into a dealership anymore, okay? There's a lot of advertising for different businesses now that are doing it all from the comfort of your home. And that's what we're doing together too, right? Uh, Kevin, like all I'm going to end up doing is coming to your, your home for the first time that we meet is going to be with the car. We're already going to have pricing and everything managed. All the questions will already be answered, right? This is the new kind of way since COVID has, has happened because everybody wants to be more comfortable in their own bubble sometimes, okay? Are we mm-hmm. heading towards car dealerships that don't have 100, 200 cars parked on the lot uh, at one time? Do you think that, that car, car sales are changing because of this pandemic and will change? They definitely already have changed. Uh, if you look at your local lot right now or you walk into your local dealership, you're only going to really see used cars around. All the new cars are on order, right? So we might have one to six cars at any given dealership simply for test drives. So you go there, you test drive it, but you're unable to purchase it, right? Then you place an order and then you're waiting for your car. Now, with the way the manufacturing has gone and with the way the pandemic has gone, it's all everybody's best guess. All right. Well, Brian, thank you very much for this. It really is a different world uh, than pre-pandemic about buying a car. So it's good to know that you can't just walk in anymore and go home with exactly what you want that day. Exactly. Now, in some cases, we can get it done on certain models. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to take a different brand or look at a different uh, type of vehicle, we can. But if you're you're dreaming about that luxury Porsche 911 in standard and black, I'm going to see you in roughly two years. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely depends on the client these days. All right. Thank you, Brian. You're most welcome, Kevin. All All the best, brother. And I'll see you soon. We will see you soon. Brian Fraser from uh, Delari, Canada. Coming up. Take me out to the ball game. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Baseball season begins next month. Jim Lang takes us to spring training. Baseball season's almost upon us. The Blue Jays getting into Grapefruit League season, opening day not that far away. And, I mean, there's a lot of great things happening with the 2022 edition of the Toronto Blue Jays. So talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by their longtime beat writer and columnist for the Toronto Sun, Rob Longley. Rob, how are you? Hey, great, Jim. It's, uh, it's a, I mean, You probably don't want to hear this, but it's a beauty day down here in Benito, Florida today. And makes you really want baseball season to come. It's, it's a pretty exciting time to be around this team. It really is, and you think as exciting as everything was, then the news, they picked up arguably one of the great defensive players in the game, a third baseman, Matt Chapman, from the Oakland A's. Yeah, I mean, that was such a huge development. This team, I mean, I think this team is going to be a contender without without him. Uh, arguably the deepest rotation in all of baseball, certainly in the American League. Arguably the most explosive offense in, in all of baseball. We can win a lot of games uh, with just those two things, but if there was a glaring hole, it was it was in the infield, and specifically at third base. So now you've got literally one of the best defending third basemen in, in baseball, and a guy who can actually hit for power as well. It's this team is pretty darn complete right now. For manager Charlie Montoyo, how does this affect how he sets up his lineup in the infield, and knowing that he's got such a reliable guy at the hot corner in Chapman? Yeah, it gives him some versatility. I mean, for sure, he's got an everyday guy at third base. He's got an everyday guy at shortstop. They they believe in Bobachev, and I I think there's certainly some upside in in him defensively that he'll continue to improve. Um, So you got everyday guys at the two left side positions in the infield, and and then you can keep Rod Rowe Jr. at first, and he's certainly an all-star first baseman now, so uh, he's obviously comfortable over there, and you don't have to worry about shuffling him over to third or too many days at the age. The only question mark is at uh, at second base, and at, at the moment, anyway, they're comfortable enough at, in probably platooning it between Kevin Biggio and uh, Santiago Espinal. Um, Biggio was a pretty troubled year for him last year. They moved him all over the diamond, and he had you know three injuries during the course of the season. So um, it took him some time to uh, to to recover from that. But he, I spoke with him recently, and he's you know he's confident that. Uh, he can uh, relive some of that promise that he showed two years ago. And 
while still a critical position in the infield, in a lot of ways, second base can be easier to play than third. And he might find himself a, a comfortable home there for at least half of the game. So, you know, the infield is set. Obviously, you could upgrade at second base if you needed to, but, you know, you really have the, you're set rather nicely at the two critical positions in the infield. And that's, that's a huge development for this team because, you know, um, pitching and defense, as Charlie Montoya always tells us, and uh, now they have the defense to go with the pitcher. Speaking with Rob Longley, longtime beat writer, columnist for the Toronto Sun, and you mentioned Bo Bichette. They have George Springer. They have Matt Chapman. They have Vlad Guerrero Jr. I, I keep thinking that this team has the capability to do something, and Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero Jr., to me, have the chance to be two of the brightest young sports stars in the entire GTA. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that they already are. Um, and if you want to get, go deep into this, like, are Guerrero and Bichette the uh, the Matthews and Marner of the Blue Jays? I, I think for certain they are. They're both young guys with huge ups- upside and already have established themselves as superstars. And, you know, it's a team that uh, already is considered one a, a World Series favorite. Uh, and, and, you know, as you know, Jim, when we get to the, to the summertime, there's not a whole lot of sports to watch. And, and baseball becomes um, really captivating, not just for sports fans in the Toronto and GT area, GT area but coast to coast. And I think we're going to really see a surge and a further surge in popularity with this team. It's probably going to rival what we saw in 2015 and 2016, the last two times they were in the playoffs. And they're superstar driven. And in some ways, Bichette and Guerrero are more magnetic than maybe Bautista and Donaldson were in, in their own ways. I mean, obviously those guys were superstars as well, but there's something about watching a young star come up and continue to be a superstar for, for years on end. And I think these two guys have the, the possibility of being superstars in, in, in Canadian sports for, for, for several years to come. Yeah, well said. Uh, you, you mentioned the rotation Kevin Gaussman added in the offseason. It's all of a sudden a position where you're like, I'm not sure. You look at the Blue Jays rotation, Rob, you're like, well, I feel really confident going into any series now. Yeah, and you know, I spoke to uh, a number of uh, pitchers yes, uh, just after the trade was done uh, to, to bring Chapman in, into town, and they were already confident, and, and now they're even more so because um, when you have a guy over at, at third base and you're a ground ball out guy on the mound, much like Jose Barrios is and, and much like uh, Alec Manoa can be if he uses a sinker ball, then it's, you just you just can ha- have even more confidence when you're on the mound. You can really trust your stuff and, 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 you know, realize that anything hit over towards the left side of the infield is going to be scooped up. And, um, you know, all, what, what is already a deep and talented rotation now has a ton of confidence as well. You know, a lot of people in the York region and Mark, I'm very excited about relief pitcher Jordan Romano. I, I thought he was pretty darn good last year. What are the expectations for him this year? Yeah, you know, I think essentially to be the closer and a darn good one at that. Um, teams don't like to designate a closer for some reason. This management group doesn't. They prefer to call it high leverage situations. So if they feel he's better Romano win in the eighth inning, they'll do that. But you know, he is their closer. He's their ace of the bullpen. And uh, yeah, I've had the chance to watch him pitch down here a couple of times. And as good as he was last year, he looks like even more of a beast this year. He's... His fastball is something else. His slider is something else. His fastball's got pretty good movement on it too. And as we know, he's he's he can easily touch 100 miles an hour. So uh, you know, it's, it's nice to have a homegrown kid uh, de- developed by the Jays from the GTA, and and not just be a bit player. Like he's he could be a a, a, a real critical role to this team in those crucial uh, late inning situations. And he thrives on it. He loves the pressure of it. He loves the. Uh, uh, when the stakes are high, and he's even a real, cool, really cool dude on the mound, but he's also a really cool dude to talk to. I can't say enough good things about Jordan Romano. And, and Rob, in closing, I, you know, you and I have been around sports for a long time, and when the team's not doing well, they give off this negative vibe, and it's tough, even as a reporter dealing with them. What kind of energy and vibe are you getting off this team in spring training going into the season? Oh man, I, I don't know if I've you know, vibe is a word that can be overused at times, but. I don't know if I've seen a baseball team, a Blue Jays team, with, with this much confidence and this much positivity and this much desire. Like it's, they're even though they've yet to really prove a whole lot, they're a hungry group, and not only a hungry group, Jim. They're they're, they're a group that believes not just that they're a playoff team, but that they're a serious contender for for the World Series. And 
if you look at some of the some of the the sports books around North America, they're actually the third choice right now, which is kind of crazy when you consider how things went last year. But that's a testament to the potential of the young guys, and it's a testament to some of the offseason changes that they've made. And um, you, you can just see it in the way they go about their business here every day. They, they're working hard at this new facility they have down in Dunedin, and uh, um, doing so with energy, with eagerness, and, and a lot of confidence. And it's, it's kind of fun to be around a group like that. You know, spring training is always at the time of great optimism uh, because you haven't played a game for real yet. But there's just something a little bit more to this team, as, as you kind of alluded to. And I think that's why, in a lot of ways, they're going to be a, a really enjoyable and entertaining team to watch once the season gets started. Can't wait, Rob. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope we can talk more during the season. Really looking forward to your coverage as always. Let's do it, Jim. My pleasure. Take care. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.